0: open your scriptures with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be continuing and finishing up our look at the chapter. As we saw last time, Paul is talking about how the work of the true ministry and the true minister has been opposed rather strongly in Corinth by these false teachers who Use their superior sounding wi- wisdom and grace to their superior sounding wisdom to try and overrule the grace and the teaching that Paul has brought to them, and many of the Corinthians seem to have been led astray. And so we've gone through the first 13 verses, and and he's telling them, you know, we've spoken to you, verses 11 through 13, openly. With an open heart, we've shared everything with you. We've suffered all of these things for you, in prisons, riots, labors, everything, so that we could bring you the true gospel, and you received that gospel, and you were transformed by that gospel, but now you're denying us the the love, the affection, and the hearing ears to hear the truth, saying you're not restricted by us, but you're you're restricting yourselves against loving us. And so he tells them to widen their hearts. I'll turn this off for now. Technical issues of some kind today. There we go. Now it's off. So he's asking to, to widen your hearts also. And you might say, well, Paul, how do they do that? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is the beginning of his instruction on that. So why don't we read the passage again to remind ourselves where we are. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and inflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, (coughs) by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors yet are true, as unknown, yet are well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Coming to today's passage, how do we do that? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? And what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ in Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we seek in our life to draw nearer to you, to conform our life more and more to the image of your son and true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Help us, Lord, to understand these instructions that you give through the Apostle Paul that we might cleanse ourselves from unrighteousness and every defilement. We pray, Lord, for wisdom and grace in Jesus' name. Amen. So we started looking at this passage last week. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We talked about that. Yoking is you put a yoke on two ox and you can do more work than one can do. And the Old Testament forbids the yoking of your donkey with your ox. And it's obvious you would never do that because the donkey and ox, their size and power is too different. They need to be similar. They need to be able to work together cooperatively for the same goal of pulling the plow or pulling the carriage. Uh, we saw how in the Old Testament other passages talk about do not plow with a donkey and an ox together, do not wear, do not plant your vineyard with two kinds of grapes, or do not plant your field with two kinds of crops, and do not wear clothing of two kinds of fabric. And we saw how that was talking about how you cannot mix, really it's teaching about not mixing the holy and the unholy, because what happens when you mix the holy and the unholy together? You don't get something almost holy. You get something corrupt. And that corruption is what the passage is talking about. So then we looked at the context, the immediate context. It follows right on the heels of that section centered on putting no obstacles in anyone's way. And Paul is talking about how they have given the true gospel putting no obstacle, and these other teachers are hiding and veiling the gospel and switching out the parts to make it more appealing to men, and you're giving them your affection, and you're not giving God and his people and his servants, his true teachers, the right affection. So it your hearts to us. And that is the immediate context we're talking about here. They're giving their affection to people who are the adversaries of the gospel. And... Even though some of them may be believers they're doing leading people away for themselves instead of for God and so do not be unequally yoked with such people is the main context and in the larger context of the problem with in Corinth is that these teachers are using all of the you know the clever tactics of Sophistry, all of the clever tactics of the Greek and Roman philosophers, their rhetoric and everything else to prove whatever they want to prove. And the things they're proving are the things that will make them appealing. They're hiding the things that give offense in the word of God. They're adding things to the word of God that aren't there to make people happy, to make them desire what you have to offer or what these false teachers have to offer. And we see Paul has brought this up, you know, with simplicity and godly sincerity, not earthly wisdom. He came to them, Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. We're not peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity commissioned by God, he says in chapter 2, verse 17. Remember, the peddler is the one who tries to sell you something whether you need it or not and whether it's good or not. They they want to sell you what you want to buy so that they get what they want, which is your money. And he's using this of spiritual things. They sell you lies and obscuring truths so that it's what your itching ears want to hear, and you will join with them, and you will support them. And apparently that's what was happening. They were following these false teachers and restricting their love and affection for the truth and the true teachers. Paul says we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to all in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 2. So the church had this huge problem, unbelieving Jews and pagan Greek teachers, bringing in their Greek philosophy and arguments as ways of proving their superiority and leading people astray from the truth. These men were liars both by commission, by saying things that were lie, and by omission. If you don't say what God said because you're afraid of persecution or you're afraid people won't follow you or won't listen to you, then you're committing a lie of omission. Anyway, in his text, the command is very clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We looked at the first reason last week for Paul saying this, and it's the fact that we're not just incompatible. We're diametrically opposed. We're opposites. Believers and unbelievers are going in opposite directions. The unbelievers are on the broad path leading to hell, and we're on the difficult, twisting, winding path leading to the narrow door to heaven. What partnership, he says, does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? A very serious matter in Paul's mind. And that is the first reason why we cannot be joining together with them, particularly in a religious context. We must be separate from them. Now picking up at verse 16b... We are God's temple. Is the second reason he gives us. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be their people. They will be my people. Paul has talked about this before. How does God dwell with us? He told the Corinthians, do you not know that you're God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. That they are futile. 1 Corinthians 3:16 through 20. He is rebuking quite clearly and quite firmly in that passage the scholastics of his age. He's telling, oh, you're so wise in your rhetoric. You're so wise in your speaking. You're so wise in how you live so that you have all that you want. But you're fools before God because none of that will bring you to heaven. None of that gives eternal life. So he's rebuking them and telling them you need to become a fool in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the Greeks and their pagan philosophy, in order to become wise with heavenly wisdom. What he is telling them is you are fools who follow the wisdom of the Greeks and the wisdom of the Romans. And syncretism is where you marry a little bit of that religion with your religion and make your new religion, and that's what they seem to be guilty of. And a common sin throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, adding to what God has said, what the pagans desired. He's saying you're a fool, you need to become a fool in the eyes of the world, because they see that as wisdom. What is success? You know, what is wise? What is successful? You know, that which gives you good money, good health, um, good relationship, where nobody persecutes or harasses you. And that's what they were claiming. We have this, so you should follow us. He's saying until you abandon that and say that's nonsense and focus on the things the world thinks are foolishness. The vicarious atonement of Christ on the cross, dying for the sins of his people. Foolishness to the Greeks. The resurrection of the dead, even more foolish to the Greeks. That is the center of Paul's preaching and teaching. Because Christ raised from the dead, we can have confidence that our sins were paid because death no longer has power over him. And therefore, that is the source of our faith, seeing his resurrection and believing in it. You rob the gospel of all of its power if you don't have the resurrection. And yet that's one of the things they were giving up. Foolishness to the Gentiles. Become a fool. Believe in those things. And then you can know spiritual truths and speak spiritual knowledge in Christ in order that you can have that heavenly wisdom and know how to live your life rightly before God since you are God's temple. That's his whole point to them, both back in 1 Corinthians 3 and in our passage right now. Now we remember that Old Testament promise to be born again. I'll take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you to your own land and sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you have been born again, God has put his spirit in you, and you are really born again because he puts his spirit in you. I mean, your faith comes because God has changed your heart. The spirit's indwelling is central in all of that, and Paul emphasizes that relationship in Romans 8-9 says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, the, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So in other words, if we're a believer, we have the spirit. If we don't have the spirit, we're not a believer. Uh, and if we have the spirit in us, what does that make us? You're God's temple because God's spirit dwells in you. Romans 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. And so if you don't have the Spirit, you you don't have it you're not God's temple, you're not one of God's children either. Very clear in Paul's teaching. We are temples of God. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. First Corinthians six nineteen. You now, because God's spirit dwells in us, because he walks with us, he is with us, he sees everything we do. He knows every thought we have in our mind. Is he pleased with that? When those thoughts are corrupted and led astray by the, by the sinful world that we've joined ourselves to, by the wisdom we've sought, by the glory we've sought from the world, then our temple is defiled. Believers have the Holy Spirit in them, and if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're a temple of God. Therefore, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever, because in doing that, you are yoking, you're, you're yoking the temple of God with the temple of idols. God's temple must be pure. God promised to make his dwelling among us. We, we read this this morning when we looked at Isaiah 52 that's where this quotation here that Paul gives comes from I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people and just as he said to them in the Old Testament <clears throat> to the people of Israel he's saying to us now therefore go out from amongst their midst and be separate from them says the Lord and touch no unclean thing God's temple needs to be pure because God is pure. You who are pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look upon God. Habakkuk 1.13, one of his prayers to God. He is of pure eyes and to look upon evil. Evil cannot stand in his presence. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and and deceitful man. Psalm 5, 4 through 6. God cannot stand evil in his presence. And as God is in his presence, so he demands in his temple. He will not have defilement in his temple where he is dwelling with you and living with you. If you defile that, where is his place? Where is the place of the Spirit? This is behind all of the calls throughout all of Scripture for the believer to be holy and undefiled. Paul wrote to the Galatian churches, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. You know, this this fleshly desires, the, the pride of life, the love of money, the love of the world itself and the things of the world lead us astray. And we find that following Christ purely will block us from having those things. Now, love for those things is a stumbling block to our walk with God and our walk with Christ. But our love of those things and our desire for those things is what is corrupting us and leading us astray and defiling the temple of God. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. So these are opposed to each other and keep you from doing what you want to do. This brutal guerrilla warfare is taking place between the spirit of God and the spirit of the world, which is the spirit we followed. And that war is going on in our own lives, and I'm sure we can all testify to that. We might not want to do so publicly, but we can do it before God, that the things I desire are often at odds with what God requires. The things I love are sometimes what God hates. The things I want right here, right now, this time, this day... Maybe it odds what God wants for my life. Holiness and justice and goodness. And the effectiveness of our warfare is based on a number of things. One of them is how well we know what God wants. We may be following into sin and being led astray from God and and compounding our sins and getting further and further from God thinking that we're doing right because we're following our heart, not the word of God. And so Knowing what God requires is very important, but it's also influenced by the teachers and preachers and gurus and self-help leaders we listen to and read because they can also lead us away from the counsel of God. God is good, but we have this knowledge, this information. This is a technique you can use to get what you want in spite of the fact that God wants you to be holy. And we get led astray. Or we listen to preachers who always have good, encouraging things for us to say. We read books that are full of encouragements. There's no conviction of sin. There's no rebuke for sin. There's no catching us in our sin and calling us to repentance. And we follow them and think, oh, all is good with my soul because I don't have to hear any of the things that convict me. And we are led astray. And that warfare comes undone. Because we no longer know who the friend and who the enemy is. And so it's very important that our teachers not be tickling our itching ears, but be telling us what God wants for our life. Paul's charge to young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy was written shortly before Paul was executed and Paul was expecting death. Anyway, he says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now many take that in season and out of season to be when people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort strong words with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when... People will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Now, what suits their own passions? Well, not the conviction of sins, not the rebuke for our sins, not being reproved or proven that we're in, that something is sin not being exhorted to do what is right, the things he's calling Timothy to do. And those are the things that Scripture themselves can do when we read it and hear it and understand it. Rather, they suit their own passions. We desperately need that whole truth and nothing but the truth. Remember James' admonition? Uh, We want God's presence in our life, and to have that we need to be holy. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James 4, 8 through 10. If we want to enter God's holy presence, we must be holy. And yes, I know that none of us can be perfect in any of the things that we do, but we are covered by the blood of Christ, and that is promised to us when? When we are saved, everything's covered by the blood of Christ. We don't need to worry about our sin. No, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins, when we turn from them, when we repent of them. And so we must be doing that. We must be purifying ourselves from all the things that cause us to stumble and all of the things that are corrupt and defiled within us. His presence is really always with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul's point in our passage today and last week is that we can't enter that presence yoked together with unbelievers. We can't enter his presence following a false teacher or a peddler of God's Word. Because by their corruption of God's Word, either by adding to it or taking away from it, or even just muting part of it, they lead us to corruption. And then we also are corrupt. Continuing in verse 17a, because we are God's temple, we are to separate from the unbelievers. Separate from what? From whom? What are the unclean things? Well, this is where the rubber really meets the the road and the debate happens. And so I won't get into the debate too much. I'll just share what I have from Scripture. Do we need to separate from the world? Well, there's a sense in which we separate from their religion. Right? We do not enjoy we do not enjoy fellowshipping with them when they're doing their religious practices. We do not enter into prayer and bowing to their idols. We do not enter into listening to their religious teaching. We separate from that, yes, but we're not necessarily Focusing on the world in this passage. Remember Paul touched upon this in 1 Corinthians 5. He was talking about sexual sin within the body. But it tells us a little about his attitude towards where we're separating from. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am now writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a one. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Why did he say that? Well, because it defiles us too. Yes, the main point of that passage is bringing them to shame for their sin to the point of repentance for their sins so that they can be restored but in the context also it's about our place we are defiling ourselves by willingly associate with people who call themselves brothers and we're leading others astray oh but so-and-so fellowships with that guy even though he's you know homosexual or even though he's calling himself a Christian and sexually immoral or idolatrous or whatever else the sin may be. And we lead others away. We defile ourselves and we defile others by that compromise. And that compromise ultimately does lead us to more compromise. You give an inch, they take a mile, is an old saying. That's true of the Christian faith when you start giving an inch to other religions. We can have no or sinners who are lost in their sin. But note, those who bear the name of brothers, those who claiming to be a believer but are walking astray from the word of God, especially in our context in the Corinthian problems, those teachers who bear the name of brother and are leading people one way, one way or another away from the worship of God the way God has prescribed it and following the worship of men either by lying to them or by omitting things, adding things, whatever that may be. Any false teacher, a believer who teaches or peddles the word instead of preaching the whole counsel of God, I would include in this. Anyone who places a stumbling block before you, anything that causes anything to hinder you from full obedience to God's revealed will. If that includes, in my thinking, those who won't tell you God's will because you don't want to hear it, Thus, you don't know that you're supposed to stop doing something. Thus, you go off into sin. Thus, they have stumbled you. This can be a very hard thing. If you do this and you insist upon this, you'll be despised. You'll be be hated. You may even be left alone. They'll call you divisive. They'll call you evil. But that's what brings us to the end of verse 17 and chapter 7, verse 1. It's Paul's conclusion, but what is his conclusion of this matter? Obedience brings a reward. Right? He says, come out and touch no, separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you, you shall be sons and daughters to me. Think about that reward. God's promises are what enable the believer to have hope in God. He tells us, you must do this, you must stop doing that, and then I promise this is a blessing for you. And it's the blessing that really gives us the strength to say, yes, I should, I really need to do that, I want to do that. It's good for me. We don't always think of, you know, eternally this is good for me. God often gives us something more immediate to reassure us. And to encourage us, in spite of all of the stiff opposition we have to doing what God calls. And so, in this case, we have a promise for obedience from separating from unclean things. We have a promise, if you're not yoked to unbelievers who lead you away from true obedience to God's revealed will, then there is a blessing promised. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14:15. In our context, this is really talking about those false teachers who are attacking Paul and leading people to give them their affections, to give them their respect, to give their word preeminence over God's word. And he's calling on them to separate from those people because they are leading you down the wrong path. Promise, number one, I will welcome you, God says. The wicked is not welcomed into God's presence. They have no place in God's presence. Uh, If you look at Psalm 15, who who does have a place with the Lord? Psalm 15 says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friends in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord and swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Are not the wicked teachers Paul has been fighting against and have been raging against Paul and trying to destroy the Christian ministry in Corinth Would they not be defiled? Would they not be vile in God's eyes? And as Paul and the right ministers who are preaching the whole counsel of God, the truth of God, are they not the ones who fear the Lord? They should be honoring the work of Paul and men like him and despising these false teachers. So that's the first promise. I will welcome you. They cannot come into God's presence. You cannot come into God's presence yoked with them. You're defying God and defiling his temple. You come into God's presence by doing what is right and loving what is right and loving those who love what is right. Promise number two. Verse 18. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Adam was not a child of God when he was created. He was created as a servant of God. We now get promoted from servant to children, a much higher estate. As John says, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. John 1:12 and 13. We are now children of God through Christ. How do we know if we're children of God? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8:16. God has put his Spirit in us. We know that we are now a new creation in Christ. Paul references back in chapter 1 where he says, you're, or 2, two you are a letter written on your hearts. Your hearts have been transformed, you are new people, everybody can see that, you can see that. That's how you know the authenticity of Christ's work through Paul. And that spirit in us bears witness that we are God's children because we have a changed heart, because we now hate sin. We keep keep stumbling into it over and over again, the same sins for the 30, 40 years we've been believers. But we hate it and we love God and we love the things that God says and reveals to us from his word. That's how we know we are children of God. The spirit inside of us testifies to it. And remember that it is that very same spirit who is offended by our sin, by our corruption, and by our false, bad associations. He bears witness within us. Does he bear witness when we're far from God? He brings conviction, I hope, and repentance. You remember John's glorious teaching on this matter? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. Now, We who know that hope want to be like him, not be like the world, not to be comfortable in our sins. We want to be like Christ. And that is all the more encouragement to us to put away everything that defiles our body and our spirit. Separate from those things and don't get drawn in. Don't get sucked into following them. And how do we know, though, that this is true? Well, maybe it will happen, maybe no. He says, thus says the Lord Almighty. God's promise is absolute. God cannot lie. Titus 1.2 tells us that. And he's sworn by his holy name. Thus says the Lord Almighty. That's how we can be confident in those promises. And this is where 7, one comes into play. Since we have these promises... What promises? People who want to take 14 through 18 out of the chapter 6 and throw it away kind of lose the point. Since we have these promises, I will be a father to you. You will be sons and daughters to me. I will welcome you. Previous chapter. Not to mention what he's talking about in chapter 6 and in chapter 5 the ministry of the gospel here, the ministry of reconciliation, he calls it, we're talking about salvation and eternal life as well. Those promises are all linked together to our lives here on earth, and our reward in heaven will vary depending on what we've done. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You know, by faith we know that His rewards will be great. By faith we know, even though you know, obedience in the here and now means I have to deny myself, take up my cross, I have to face persecution, I have to face lack of the things I could have if I were to be, you know, more ear tickling or more worldly. We know that he will reward us in heaven. Everyone who has given up homes or family will receive ten times as much, he says. We have here a call to action. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. We know God dwells in perfect holiness, not in sin, not in corruption, not in darkness. Just as First John said, God dwells in perfect light, we must also dwell in the light, not in the darkness. That is required of us. That is really the gospel. And we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement, our personal defilement, our sins. Right? James said, we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John one nine. Add to what James had said. But we also have to worry about our corporate defilement. If we are in you know if we're going to the temple of the unbeliever and hearing the unbelieving teaching or we're going to the house of God but nobody is teaching the truth of God they're you know, only teaching the appealing good things and happy things that make people want to give money then we're also going to be defiled. We already read that passage I wrote you not to associate with sexually immoral people, not meaning those of the world, but the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, because you'd have to go out from the world. But I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In verse 14 through 16, we've read, What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light and darkness? What accord has Christ and Belial? What portion does the believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Joining to such things defiles us. Allowing them within the body of the church defiles us as well, the body of Christ, the church. We need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. By doing so, he says, we bring to completion holiness in the fear of God. Cleansing ourselves from defilements, particularly the defilements in this chapter, this section of associations, is a necessary part of our continuing sanctification. If we continue with false teachers and peddlers and ear ticklers, our sanctification isn't going to advance. It's going to stall out, never reach completion. In fact, if we're listening to the wrong things, it could be leading us away from God further and further. In the fear of the Lord, meaning the honor and respect of him, we should honor and respect his commands and do what he has called us to do. Uh, where does this come into play? In most of our lives, it comes in with the books we read. Sometimes the church we go to or the sermons and materials we listen to on the Internet, and we can be led astray. We need to be careful with those. Now, there are some men who have said many great things, and you love to read them, and then you get a little further in. It's like, what in the world is he saying? And we need to set those things aside lest we be dis- distracted lest we be confused, lest we be deceived, and start walking the wrong way. Anyway, I, I said I won't get into the divisiveness of it. We need to see is is what is it helpful for us to be listening to them and following them? Or are we going to get our ears tickled and happily run off away from God? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father we know, Lord, that schism, that splitting within your body is a terrible sin, a great evil. But we know also that there must be divisions at times to separate those who believe from those who do not. And we pray, Lord, for grace and wisdom, that we would be careful of our association, be careful of who and what we follow, that we might follow you faithfully and truthfully with great joy in our hearts, that we might be sanctified more and more by your Spirit that you might dwell with us and that we might turn away from all things that defile us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.